This podcast is a project of the Climate Designers Network. Hey, this is Eric. Welcome to season three of Climathon. This season, I'm talking to women across the globe who are at the forefront of climate science and climate action. Each guest is a thought leader in one or more of the drawdown.org climate solution sectors. What, you may ask, are the drawdown.org solution sectors? Well, important topics like renewable electricity, soil and agriculture, architecture, oceans, health, education, so much more. The goal of this season is, of course, to continue to help design educators incorporate a foundation of sustainability and regeneration into their courses and, in turn, inspire more climate designers. Climate solutions are already here. You can literally start being part of the solution today. Climify brings these solutions to you. So no matter what your skill or knowledge level, you can implement what you learn today in your personal life and classroom. In this third episode of season three, the drawdown area of focus is on education and more directly centered on education through the media and how politics and greed have shaped what we see and hear. Dr. Genevieve Gunther joins me today to share her work with her group End Climate Silence and through her upcoming book, The Language of Climate Politics. I've been following Genevieve on Twitter for a while now and her writing and work there and beyond inspired me to reach out for this season. I hope you take away from this discussion that although we all add carbon to the atmosphere, we are not the biggest problem. There are a handful of people creating the climate crisis. However, despite them, you can be part of the solution today. Hi, everybody. I am Dr. Genevieve Gunther, and I am the founding director of a volunteer activist group called End Climate Silence, whose mission is to push the news media to cover climate with the urgency and accuracy it deserves. I'm also affiliate faculty at the New School and on the board of the Tishman Environment and Design Center. And I am a writer and a researcher who is currently writing a book for the politics list at Oxford University Press entitled The Language of Climate Politics, which is about how we talk about the climate crisis and the solutions and how we can better do that in order to actually decarbonize our economies fast enough to halt warming as soon as possible. Best place to find me is on Twitter, where I am very active, at least for now. And my handle is Dr. Vive, and Vive is spelled V-I-V-E, and that's all one word, Dr. Vive. Well, welcome, Genevieve. I'm happy to have you on the program today. And you do so much. Just listening to your introduction, you're an educator, a former Renaissance scholar. Yes. Yes. Public speaker, author, and you started this great organization called End Climate Science. I would also End say Climate that. Silence. That is silence. a mistake that everybody makes. It's you just don't want somehow- to end climate science. <laughs> no, absolutely not. We want to <laughs> sort of keep that going for as long as possible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you're not, I mean, that would make you an activist too, right? You're, you're involved in activism. Oh, yes. Yeah, and um, consultant, you contributed to the IPCC panel, which I find 
awesome. Well, I I reviewed um, the drafts, so I don't know how much of a contribution that is, but at least I you know, put in my two cents. So. That's more than most people were involved, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what did I miss? I mean, there's so many things here that, that you do, and I just don't know how you do it all. How do you do it? Well, um, I have a very strict schedule, which I try to adhere to. I'm also a mother of a 12-year-old boy, and I have a very active little dog who needs a lot of attention too. So I'm also a caregiver on some levels. Oh my gosh, yeah. Um, no, but I think that all of the disparate parts of my identity and all the different you know jobs that I try to do all feed into each other because they're all essentially focused on how the climate crisis is represented in language and how those representations have political effects. So it's not like I have to sort of take off one hat and put on a different hat. Um, it's all sort of the same hat. Maybe I'll sort of cock it at different angles. I like but that. I like that to cock at the different angles because I think designers wear a lot of hats, but yeah, it's design, right? It's, it's a exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, like many people, you started off in a different career. And I mm -hmm. find this super interesting because um, you were in a Renaissance scholar. Right? Yes, I was actually. Yes. Um, and a very distinct kind of Renaissance scholar. I was very interested in Renaissance aesthetics, uh -huh. um, you know, which led me into actually the scholarly study of magic because in the 16th century, um, poetry wasn't, you know, literature itself wasn't actually a sort of recognized cultural form. There wasn't such a thing as sort of English literature in the beginning of the 16th century. Um, there was elevated language and some aristocrats wrote poems. Um, but you know, when Shakespeare was born, there wasn't even any public theater. So over the course of the English Renaissance, this thing, poetry, novels, theater, all of this was a like new cultural development, but it had these deep roots with theories of beauty and theories of the power of language that went all the way back to the ancient Greeks that um, were connected to ideas about how magicians could use spells to conjure spirits and do Amazing. all sorts of other things. So there's all of this weird crossover between literature and magic in the Renaissance, which is what my first book was about, like how those two discourses were intertwined and how they became increasingly um, separated and literature became its own autonomous form over the course of the English Renaissance. But it didn't actually even really happen until the 18th century with Kant. And not even there. It's still a little bit confusing and entangled there. Yes. But anyway, so that was the stuff that I did. But weirdly, it kind of prepared me to mm, do the work that I'm doing now in the climate crisis. Yeah, how did this think this. But if you think about our historical moment, right? We're coming out of the fossil fuel era where most of our ideology, no matter what our sort of political side is, most of our fundamental ideology under fossil fuel capitalism um, is what has grown out of our economic formation and what grows out of the social relationships that we have in that economic formation. So it's our this sort of set of beliefs that we have that have justified the way the world has been through the 20th century. And the climate crisis is asking us to remake that world. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of calling our beliefs into question and it's making it harder for those beliefs to justify the systems that we have in place. So we're also in this weird kind of historical transformation where we're going from an old system 
to a new system. And right now, this new way of thinking about how we produce and use energy, how we produce and use goods, how we travel, how we relate to each other, what is work going to look like, all of that is this new emerging form, which is still sort of drawing off this old ideology in the same way that poetry was drawing off this sort of magical ideology, which really wasn't what it was, but that was the language they had to think about it in. And that's kind of what's happening right now with the you know, the energy and the economic transition that we're going through. So that's what my book is about in a way, how this fossil fuel ideology sort of is emerging even in our the ways we're thinking about the climate crisis and its solution and sort of holding it back, holding our thinking back. And so yeah. we want to sort of undermine those old beliefs and come up with new ways of thinking and talking about the climate crisis and, our, and its solutions to sort of push that historical movement forward. Wow, that, that's a really good that's that's a really good way to describe how I think many of us are feeling. I'm I'm feeling in this in this current moment in history that it's this sense of uneasiness and hopefulness yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Right? And that's that's what my takeaway was from uh, some of the stuff you've written yeah. and and what you're what you're writing that will one day be able to read. And, um, 2024 is when your book comes out, correct? That's correct. Correct. Spring of 2024, just in time for the, like the real uh, ramping up of the presidential election campaign. Oh <laughs> another, another era of uneasiness. No, exactly. Yeah. So it does seem that, you know, the work that you were doing before in, in your scholarship and, and, and prior to, what you're doing now has really prepared you very well to make the connections and to create the communication. I think that um, we need to, I don't know, how would you describe um, the way that you want people to feel or act or react to the things that you write? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I don't think that I can say that I want everyone to have the same reaction I think that, you know, people are going to have different reactions to what I'm writing um, based on uh, what they bring to the things that I've written, you know, what their prior views are, what their personal situation might be, um, what they know about the climate crisis or don't know. All of these things are going to sort of um, influence how they receive what I've written and how they interpret it and how it may or may not inspire them. I mean, if I were to give a general answer to that question, I would think I would say I would want people to see the climate crisis as a political struggle, not as a technological project, not as a, you know, um, by technological project, I mean, not, not only as the project of sort of substituting clean energy technologies for fossil energy technologies, and not necessarily as a sort of, you know, new form of the same kind of wealth creation that we've always had. But I want people to see it as a moment where we're really going to have to transform all of our systems. But in order to do that, we really do have to have this tremendous political fight because there are very powerful forces doing everything they can to block that transformation. And then 
many people sort of just from the received wisdom of our culture are kind of, even if they think they believe in the climate crisis, are kind of allied with the people who are trying to block the transition because they think about the world kind of in the same terms. So I want people to come away seeing it as a conflict, feeling excited about being on the side of the people who will fight to transform right. and save our world. And um, hopefully, you know, a little bit energized and sort of ready to get out there and, and contribute to this fight. Well, that's how, the way I feel about what's happening right now. And the, I wonder too, with just your work prior and any sort of like historical uh, precedence in that I always have felt that with any sort of transition, maybe towards that like progressive arc with mm -hmm. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about is that there's always these people trying to pull you back. Mm -hmm. It's maybe what they're used to. They don't want their habits to change. Is that also what you mean by politics? That it's, it's social politics. It's not just the politics that you imagine like you're in Washington, D.C. or the, the capital or in the state. Yeah, yeah. I do think I have a very capacious understanding of what politics means. I mean, there's the business of policymaking, mm -hmm. which is certainly what most people think of when they think of politics. But I also have a kind of um, larger definition of politics, which is sort of how power dynamics um, emerge in our culture and in our everyday lives and how those power dynamics sort of restrict the possibilities for us, um, but also, you know, make other possibilities possible. Um, so it's a sort of, it's not just policymaking, it's also attention to power dynamics in general and thinking about how we might change those um, in order to, you know, halt global warming and make people's lives better at the same time. Yeah, so I'm guessing then, your, your book that you're working on right now, The Language of Climate Politics. <laughs> it's pretty self-explanatory in its title, um, but can you tell us more about um, why you're writing that book and just just about sort of the, the breakdown of what's inside? Sure. So um, the book is made up of, I think, six chapters and a preface. And the preface is about the word we, um, and the chapters are about the words. Each chapter sort of is centered on one word. And the words are alarmist, cost, growth, um, India and China. And I'm making air quotes, although the people <laughs> listening to this podcast yeah, won't see them. India and China in air quotes, um, innovation and resilience. Because these are the words that sort of give us the concepts that are dominating the way that we think and talk about the climate crisis. And they're all concepts that have come from our fossil fuel economy. And um, they need to be, their assumptions need to be excavated, um, studied, tossed out if they're outdated or inaccurate. And then we need a new sort of deep framing of the way that we think about these problems. So, um, I got the idea for this book um, when the New York Times hired uh, a conservative columnist named Brett Stevens, who at that time was a sort of inveterate climate denier who really thought that, you know, climate was just a religion and there was absolutely no reality to it, or at least he claimed this is what he thought. 
I don't really know what he believes or doesn't believe. In any event, his first column for the New York Times um, was a piece called Climate of Complete Certainty. And he used the kind of um, denialist argument that had been sort of au courant since at least 2008, 2009, which was that the science is too uncertain to justify spending money on decarbonization or any kind of like, you know, disruptive policy. And so we should just kind of do nothing and wait until science kind of be gathers more certainty through the research process and through debate over its findings. Okay. So I read this, this article and I had this sort of revelation. I had been studying climate science by myself, basically through, you know, online platforms like edX, but also through reading, you know, climate science textbooks. Um, I'm a big reader and a huge autodidact. Um, and I, yeah. you know, and I also ask people lots of questions about things I don't understand. I realize that I can't teach myself everything, but, no. you know, I had <laughs> been studying climate science. And so I knew that in climate science, uncertainty doesn't necessarily mean the state of not knowing. It can mean a range of possible outcomes. So a climate science will, scientist may say, so we've run these models and um, we are projecting a median of say three degrees Celsius warming by 2100 with the uncertainty of maybe you know 1.7 to 4.3 degrees okay and in that case uncertainty means range of possible outcomes that you can actually predict with relative confidence and in fact uncertainty and confidence in climate science as scientific jargon are synonymous so you can say the uncertainty interval or you can say the confidence interval but this is not the way that deniers were using the word uncertainty yeah they were using uncertainty to mean the state of not knowing, like, oh, do right. I want to have chicken or do I want to have fish for dinner? I don't know. I'm uncertain. Maybe I'll think about it in a few hours. So they were talking about uncertainty in a way that made the general public who doesn't have any familiarity with climate science, you know, disciplinary jargon, mm -hmm. think that climate scientists weren't really sure about their findings. And then what's really diabolical about the strategy is that anytime a climate scientist would communicate in public and, you know, scrupulously acknowledge the uncertainty of their findings, they would simply reinforce this denialist message. They weren't really yeah. sure whether climate change was real. And so I saw how this dynamic from worked where there was a sort of disciplinary meaning of a word and there was this kind of colloquial meaning of the same word and the, the climate deniers were weaponizing this disciplinary word to make people who would use the kind of colloquial definition confused about how confident scientists really were. And then so all, once I saw that dynamic, yeah. I was started seeing it everywhere. <laughs> now, I saw it in my own family where I won't call her out, but there's someone in my family who was basically the same thing. Like she yeah. would say, well, I'm, I'm going to wait till there's more facts because yeah, 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 they exactly. don't know yet. They don't know right. Yet. Exactly. Exactly. So it this really well. Apparently. It worked brilliantly, and it's still it's still it's still happening. Mm. Um, 
So for example, climate scientists themselves will be worried about accusations of alarmism, right? And this is something that gets weaponized by climate deniers, you know? Um, Climate economists will study the costs of climate change, right? And very often their findings, again, will be weaponized by people who are trying to block the passage of climate policy. So the book um, is tracing out these relationships between these different ways of using this word, these words. But what I found in researching and actually writing the book, and this is what has been the most startling so far, is that in fact, you know, our typical understanding of climate politics, and I mean in the sort of policymaking sense and also in the kind of, you know, um, partisan sense, is that attitudes about climate change are very polarized, like everybody sort of on the left believes that the climate crisis is real and wants us to do something about it, wants governments to do something about it, and everyone on the right denies the reality of the climate crisis and is opposed to clean energy. But what I've found in my research is that this actually doesn't really cash out on the level of um, elite discourse. In elite discourse, what's really crazy is that the deniers and the sort of center left, you know, the center left economists, the center left uh, climate commentators in the media, the center left politicians, and even the center left climate activists are all speaking about the climate crisis in the same way, using these attitudes that come from the fossil fuel economy. And so I've started to think that actually the reason our politics is so stuck is not even so much that there's polarization, but that there's actually a remarkable amount of unity in the attitude towards the climate crisis and how we solve it that's actually preventing us from getting ourselves off of fossil fuels and making whatever changes to our systems that are necessary to make that actually happen. We're in the way of ourselves. <laughs> in some sense. I mean, it depends. Yeah. And this is what the beginning ch- preface is about. It depends on who we is, right? Who is yeah. we in this in this climate discourse like are you and i in this you know center left elite group that's allying itself perhaps unwittingly with the climate deniers i don't know about that you know are most americans in this group right are certainly people of color um in the global south this group absolutely not there this is one of the things that i want people to understand once they finish the book is that there is no universal we there's no humanity who's causing the climate crisis there are certain groups who are advancing the cause of fossil Mm -hmm. fuels and then there are groups who are trying to end fossil fuels and you know and then there's a big muddled middle but that's the polarization (laughs) but most people are still on the side of fossil fuels now, in that sort of what you described in terms of there's this the we that we need to, to determine who that we is, right? right. The center left. Um, do you do you find that uh, you know the there's like a, what is a hundred different um, companies are basically the problem, and the language about that is always about carbon footprint, which right, is right, right, right from them from from these companies. And we're all trying to make our carbon footprint small. Is that right. kind of what you're talking about? 
Uh, I think, I mean, the carbon footprint is a really interesting example of the way that um, fossil fuel interests will weaponize actual scientific research. Because sometimes you'll hear that the fossil fuel companies made up the concept of the carbon footprint, and that's not actually entirely true. Um, the carbon footprint is a sort of legitimate um, concept out of sustainability research. The carbon footprint, the ecological footprint, all of these are, um, you know, heuristics that the sustainability researchers use in order to kind of measure the impact of humanity on the biosphere. Mm. Um, and, but, you know, oil companies and their PR agencies are very, very, very good at mining um, academic research for things that they can weaponize and use against climate action. So what they did, BP did this, um, I'm forgetting the year. It was either 2004 or 2008, I think. They came up with a campaign asking people to to worry about their own carbon footprint. Yeah. Um, and to start measuring their carbon footprint. I remember I remember seeing that. Yeah. Yeah, and this is this is designed this campaign is designed to make you feel completely guilty and despairing. Right. Because as as someone who lives in a fossil fuel economy, unless you basically pull yourself out of the world, you are going to be emitting carbon yeah. by living in the world. Right. right. Um, and even if you were able to somehow draw your own carbon footprint down to two or one ton of CO2 a year um, until large corporations and energy companies start changing their practices, global emissions are still going to go up. So they're trying to sort of use this as a way to distract you from the sort of systemic challenge and the political necessity of having a kind of larger public fight about the laws and the way that money is distributed to um, fossil fuel interests and keep you worrying about like whether you should have a straw with your iced tea, you know? Um, and this is, and, and also just feeling like the whole crisis is too big for you to solve alone. And so yeah. hopefully you'll just give up and forget about the whole thing. That's what they want and ultimately. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Um, exactly. So yeah, the climate footprint is, I mean, the carbon footprint is a really um, not a very useful way of thinking about what we need to do. Yeah, actually, one of my students um, this past year worked on this video where she was basically pointing out that that same thing. She's, mm -hmm. She was talking about essentially like, let's end the climate crisis. And she's using a reusable straw, right? Mm -hmm. And it transitions into like showing what is actually going on as right. you're wasting your time trying to find the right. straw at the store. Right. And yeah, little things do matter, of course. But yeah, these the big change has to happen. Yeah, before. I will. However, um, I'd like to just add one caveat to that, just in the spirit of not making any universal claims about um, people in the climate crisis. There is one group of people who actually should start worrying about their carbon footprints. Yeah, <laughs> and that is the the mega wealthy, the one percent, and the people yeah. above them. I mean, these people, these people emit you know, hundreds or even thousands of tons of carbon a year. Um, 
like 99% of which is not necessary. Um, And they are blowing through our remaining carbon budget while, you know, people in the global South are already, you know, starving, having their homes drowned, suffering heat wave after heat wave. I mean, it's pretty egregious. So I think, I think there is a difference between someone say who has to drive to work because they don't have any other way to get to work and they certainly can't afford even with Biden's rebates an EV an EV so and someone who has you know bought a vintage Lamborghini and then hired a luxury shipper to, like some American who's bought a vintage Lamborghini and then hired some luxury shipper to <laughs> ship this car over to Italy so that he yeah. can sort of you know drive it on the cliffs of the Italian Riviera that act of carbon emission driving that Lamborghini is very different than the act of carbon emission in driving your fossil fuel car to work because you have to go to work, you know? So, um, so yeah. So again, like I think that mostly the carbon footprint is a terrible concept, but I do think it has its uses when we're talking about, um, when we're talking about the mega rich. So. Well, thank you. We're going to pause here just for a few seconds to hear some messages and we'll be back to talk more about your group and climate silence solutions and to get to some more conversations about design. Where do young designers see themselves at the intersection of climate change and innovation? And how can we teach that intersection in the classroom? Designers are problem solvers, capable of imagining solutions for a more sustainable future. We have a bigger role to play in all phases of the design process, not just the beginning. My name is Rachel Cifarelli, graphic designer, recent college grad, and part of the Climate Designers EDU team. And after graduating, I realized today's classrooms tend to skip over that universal side of design. So if you're a design educator, I want to hear from your students. Help set in motion the first ever project that centers students at the intersection of design education and climate change. I want to know what your students think about sustainable design, how they see climate change impacting their future careers, and what even comes to mind when they hear the term climate design. Send your students to climatedesigners.org slash edu slash new wave survey to take the five question survey or sign up for an interview with me. Help me inform a new wave of design education, one that teaches every designer how to be a climate designer. And we're back and I'm excited to talk to you more about one of the things that I find exciting about your work is your group and climate silence. And can you tell us more about this this organization, its mission, and maybe how we can get involved to volunteer and help? That would be so lovely. Thank you. Um, yes. <laughs> so, um, wow. It's funny because I will just confess that right now the group is in a period of transition because we lost 90% of our volunteers over the pandemic. Oh, um, wow and it needs to be reconstructed. Um, and you asked me how I do everything and maybe I don't always do everything. Yeah, it's a mirage <laughs> sometimes, right? So I, this is something that has you know, been on my to-do list really literally for about six months is to build up that volunteer capacity again. Um, so if just simply- If you're listening, if you're listening, an opportunity for you. Indeed. Our website is, um, 
endclimatesilence.org, all one word. And you can contact us through the contact us button at the bottom of the webpage if you scroll all the way to the bottom. So if you're interested in volunteering, I would love to hear from you. You don't have to be in New York City where we're based. We can do everything online. Um, so yes, what we do is we try to get, I mean, originally our mission was very, very, very simple. We simply wanted journalists who were reporting on stories that were actually about the climate crisis to actually mention the words climate change in their stories. So repeatedly, um, journalists would report on extreme weather, for example, um, and even report on the findings of climate science explaining why this extreme weather event was so bad or sort of took the form that it did, but they would never actually mention the words climate change. There would be this sort of like low key form of denial, not mentioning climate change as if it weren't happening, as if it had nothing to do with the climate crisis. So our mission was just simply to get them to end that climate silence and actually mention the words climate change in the stories they were already reporting yeah. about its effects. It wasn't like I was asking them to hire climate reporters or do anything different. Just bring those two sentences into the stories they were already reporting. And that's um, the language and, of climate politics. Exactly, 100%. I mean, our research at End Climate Silence showed that the vast majority of Americans have learned everything they know about the climate crisis from the news media. So that's pretty that's shocking. Exactly. <laughs> Chilling. So it's all the more reason to make sure that the news media is doing, you know, a good job in its sort of mainstream reporting. It's not just about these sort of deep dive stories, which admittedly have gotten, you know, infinitely better since the group started in 2018 and not because of our group, but just simply because there was an explosion of interest in climate change yeah. after the IPCC released the 1.5 degrees Celsius report in 2018 and made it very clear that we had to have emissions by 2030 and zero them out by 2050 if we were even gonna have a chance of halting warming at this lower number. Um, so climate reporting has gotten much better um, most major newspapers have climate desks. There are more climate stories in the TV news, although the climate silence in the network news is really still just Pretty appalling. High. Yeah. So, um, you know, that mission is ongoing. But now I think when we kind of rebuild our momentum, I think we're going to expand our mission and ask that not only reporters mention the climate crisis, but actually say that fossil fuels are the leading cause. Fossil fuel use is far and away the main right. cause of the climate crisis, right. right? And that we can halt global heating if we stop using fossil fuels. I mean, right. that that I feel like is really the point. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, I guess it's not surprising that they're not doing that already mm -hmm. but i don't know it just pisses me off really <laughs> yes it pisses me off too um i mean part of the problem i think is that even you know even climate economics um even these mitigation um pathways 
that um, economists kind of model with their models that end up in the sort of, you know, reports of the IPCC, um, even those models don't always model the full, like almost the almost entire phase out of fossil fuels. Like right. the the sort of, that is something that is almost entirely universal, this idea that we're going to do everything we possibly can to keep using fossil fuels, you know? Yeah. And I get it. I mean, I get it. The amount of wealth that the economy has been able to generate for some people due to, you know, the energy in these, in these resources, essentially, which has freed up so much labor for other kinds of productivity, um, is something that, you know, people don't want to give up, yes, you know, yeah. I get it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's like, the question is, is, is it worth destroying everything for? Um, and, you know, some people think, oh, well, we're not going to destroy everything. It's not going to be that bad. You know, you're being alarmist or whatever. Um, but, you know, global warming is going to keep going. The planet is just going to keep getting hotter and hotter until we stop using fossil fuels and yeah. create a net zero economy. It's not like things end in 2100. Um, we keep getting hotter yeah. until we stop using fossil fuels as like to the extent that we can and have an, a, an economy that no longer emits greenhouse gases or at least carbon dioxide into yeah. the atmosphere. So, so it's like to, for people to say, ah, you're being alarmist, it's not gonna be that bad. It's like, at one point, is it not gonna be that bad? Um, how many people are gonna have- It will not affect us. Right, no, exactly, but that's the problem, yeah. right? But that's how I got into this because, you know, I really, I had seen um, an Inconvenient Truth in 2004. Me too. And then I forgot about it immediately. I went to the theater to see it. I did too. I saw it in a theater with um, the man who ended up becoming my husband and two of my, and my girlfriend with a guy who she ended up (laughs) marrying. Um, But we went on with her, you know, building our lives and, you know, building careers and getting married and whatever. But once I, you know, had a child, then all of a sudden I was like, actually. Wake up call. Yeah. None of this stops with me. This is just, I'm just a way station on into the future. And oh my God, you know. Yeah. Well, the re- one of the reasons why I love End Climate Silence is that it overlaps a lot with what I'm doing here with this show is I'm trying to get design educators to say climate science, climate change is real. Fossil fuels are causing it. Amazing. And we make things and we're part of the a problem, but also a part of the solution. So Absolutely. what can we learn from experts like you to, to help us on that journey? So that's what I like that group. And um, I think words matter. I think they really do. And I, that in itself, talking about it is a solution, especially mm-hmm. when it's through, like you said, was it 90% of Americans learn through media, uh, our, our news media? Oh my God, did I say 90? I think it was, I think I might've misspoken if I said 90. It's the majority. It's the vast yeah, majority. I'm not I sure it's 90. up to 90. I don't think you said 90. I think okay, I good. Said. <laughs> the vast majority of us are learning things through the news media. So the right. news media can be a solution. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So can you... Can you talk a little bit more then about this organization in terms of what you need from mm-hmm. maybe some volunteers if they want to get involved? Thank you. That would be great. So what we need are people who know how to do digital research 
we subscribe to databases which help us survey the reporting of the previous day or, you know, of the past, essentially. So, I mean, we do have a tendency to be a little retroactive, like we, we kind of reach out to um, journalists who have already written their stories, trying to ask them to do it differently the next time. Um, but, you know, I need people, and I can train people to do this, but I need people who have some sort of experience doing digital research or working with databases like LexisNexis um, yeah. or the database that we subscribe to to monitor television coverage. So that would be ideal. I also would love to work with graphic designers on, you know, <laughs> <laughs> graphic designers on, you know, um, logos or, um, you know, other visual material for sort of marches or branding. I need people who, I mean, people who work in the news media would be wonderful to mm -hmm. connect with. Um, yeah. You know, because it would be great to just have those kinds of, I mean, and I know a lot of climate journalists, but I would need, I would love to meet people who don't necessarily work on climate change um, because I feel like those are the people who most need to bring this message to their colleagues. Um, right. The idea that climate is not a siloed story. Um, but it's really the context for for every story that we are telling now. Yeah, so. listen, that that's what Drawdown.org is saying right now. Every job is a climate job. That's right, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. So, do you have any really? Um, I know that some of the some of the information right about climate is is pretty negative, but do you have any like positive stories that have come out of the End Climate Silence Group in terms of impacting? Uh, through the work that you do? I mean, I, I have been told informally that um, mostly people talk about climate now as an everything story in part, at least in part due to the work of End Climate Silence. Um, yeah, so that's been, that's been very gratifying. Um, you know, we, because we don't fundraise, it, again, it's a volunteer organization. And because we don't fundraise, I don't have to spend any time tracking metrics. I have worked with my volunteers, you know, very heuristically um, and very organically. So I wish I had more data for your listeners yeah. on this, <laughs> on this, but we don't spend the time to produce it because we don't need to show it to funders. Um, yeah. and, and I actually think that that's, that's worked for us so far and I don't, um, need to change it. Um, yeah, I think would the big goal for you might to get to have, uh, what Fox news do, do a show. Uh, well, I mean, if I wanted camels to fly, maybe, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> that could be your ultimate goal. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, well, unfortunately, we're running out of time here, and it, it leads me to my favorite question that I ask everyone. And you are at the new school, so you yeah. might have actually already done this. Um, but I'm curious to know about um, if you were asked to teach a design course or design project. And um, knowing what you know and the work that you do, what would this class or project be about? I mean, I think the most important thing that 
designers need to do right now is figure out how to redesign the suburbs and the exurbs and the suburban home um, and suburban living to be sustainable, to yeah. not center on the automobile. Yes. Um, I think that that is the biggest design challenge of this century in the United States. Um, and if I were a designer or an urban planner, I would absolutely teach that course. Um, cause I think it's the most, it's a fascinating challenge, but it's also a really important one that we need to solve. Well, my grad student would be happy to hear that because that's what she's working on. Fantastic. I just met with her today about this. And so I'll have to tell her because. Oh my God. Fantastic. Great yeah, minds. Yeah. 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 We'll have to share it. And well, I guess she's not going to graduate for another couple of years, but progress reports, right? Indeed. Absolutely. Well, it was really great having you on the program, Genevieve, and just really appreciate it all the time that you gave me since you have book deadlines, probably a bunch <laughs> of other things coming up. Can you tell us again where we can find you online? Yeah. So my website is GenevieveGunther.com and Gunther is spelled G-U-E-N-T-H-E-R. And I'm mostly active on Twitter. And my handle on Twitter is at Dr. Vive, all one word. And Vive is spelled V-I-V-E. It would be great to see you out there in the interwebs. <laughs> it would. And her book, uh, The Language of Climate Politics, is coming out in 2024. Thanks for having me, Eric. Climify is produced, edited, and engineered by me. A huge special thanks to Ellen Keith Shaw and Christine Pilot for their gorgeous work on the new branding, Batul Rashik and Mark O'Brien for their design help, and Brandy Nichols for her strategic guidance on improving the offerings of this podcast. If you enjoy the work we all do here and you have a spare minute or two, we truly appreciate if you left a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. The more folks that review our program, the higher the algorithm pushes up Climify in the search results. And in turn, the more likely we all can learn how to become climate designers. <laughs>